Okay, so Revelation chapter 6 is where we've got to tonight. Um, I'm going to use more slides than I normally do, not just because of the fact we're on Revelation 6, but particularly because of the fact that it's critical to us in seeing why Revelation 6 is about the unfolding Roman Empire from the time of John until the time of Constantine. So let's begin as we normally do with a bit of a recap. How are we going? Revelation chapter 1. Uh, what's that about, guys? The multitudinous Christ. So the big picture is this lovely picture, isn't it, where we see the one man, the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints, um, as a multitude together. Okay, then chapters 2 and 3 are about the Ecclesias. And this may be the last time this week that we go through all the Ecclesias, because next week we're going to need to go through the horsemen. So let's, let's go to uh, chapter 2. And the first ecclesia that we come across is the ecclesia in Ephesus. Ephesus. And give me a phrase for Ephesus. They lost their, lost their first love. Then after the ecclesia of Ephesus, we come to the ecclesia in Smyrna. And what's, what are we thinking about Smyrna? Poor but rich. Poor but rich. Yeah, super. Okay, so then we came to the ecclesia in... Pergamos, super job. And in Pergamos, we, they were holding fast, to the name. holding fast to the name. Super. And then we came to the Ecclesia in Thyatira, and they were in Diadanger. dire danger because of their um, allowance in that Ecclesia of Jezebel and everything that Jezebel represents. Okay, then we come to chapter 3. And chapter 3, we carry on with the Ecclesias, and we come to the fifth Ecclesia, which is the Ecclesia of Sardis. Sardis, and in Sardis they were alive but dead. Alive but dead. <laughs> Worrying times, right, for, for that Ecclesia and everything they represent to us. And then we come to the Ecclesia, which uh, is very different, the Ecclesia of Philadelphia, Philadelphia. and Philadelphia means love of, the brethren. love of the brethren, right? So this Ecclesia is doing something very right. And then we came finally to the Ecclesia of Laodicea. Laodicea and the, the phrase that we're going to use for the Laodicean Ecclesia is that they were lukewarm. lukewarm. The Lord Jesus says, I'm going to spew you out. And uh, Brother Thomas suggests that actually those Ecclesias represent um, historical periods um, beginning at Ephesus and taking us all the way through to the Laodicean period, which it, by his reckoning is our own. And therefore, we need to be so careful that we are not lukewarm. You can't serve God or Mother. You can't be hot or cold. You be one or the other. You can't be somewhere in the middle. Make a choice about what you want to, to, to nail your colours to. Which mask, where do you want to, to base your life? With the Lord Jesus Christ on the rock or with the thinking of the world on the sand? Then we came to chapter 4, and chapter 4 is all about the vision of the throne. throne. So we see, don't we, again, that picture that we're invited to join in. And chapter 5, we continue that vision, um, but the emphasis is more less on the throne, but actually on the book that can be opened. And who is able to open the book? Who has prevailed? 
the the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the the lamb, right? So we've got the lion and the lamb, haven't we? And then again, we see that beautiful picture of the multitude that includes Jew and Gentile as part of um, the blessed family that will be in the kingdom. And so this week we come to Revelation chapter six. Now, we're not going to read it just yet, because for us to understand that this is talking about Rome, and it's fair to say we're going to read this and we're going to think, what? He's talking about horses. How on earth are we going to decide that this is about the Roman Empire? Well, we use scripture to help us interpret scripture. And so I'm going to put some slides on, and I hope that they're going to be a real help to us in seeing what is taking place at this time. So most of you watching this class will know the book of Daniel very well. And you'll remember that in Daniel chapter 2, we read, don't we, about the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And he dreamt, didn't he, of a great image. And he had no idea what the dream meant. And Daniel was able to explain it to him because Daniel was told by God what the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had meant. And he says to him, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Now, some of you, you, you may want to just turn back to Daniel 2. Some of you will feel that you know this very, very well. And I'm not going to tell you something for many of you that you won't already know. But it's so important for all of us, and particularly the young people or any interested friends, that we understand why it is that when we come to the book of Revelation, we're looking at Rome. So here we are in Daniel 2, and the head of gold, we read, is Babylon. You, O king, are the head of gold. And then we continue to read verse 39. After you will arise another kingdom. And after that, another kingdom. And verse 40, a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. So the image that he saw had a head of gold. It had chest and arms of silver. That's talking about the Medo-Persian Empire that came after the Babylonians. Then after the Medes and Persians came the Greeks. You look in your history books, you'll see these things. And then after the Greeks... The great empire that came was the Romans. And of course, the Romans, the Roman Empire split into two. It became the Eastern and the Western Empire. And so Daniel's, uh, the, 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 in Daniel 2, the image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamt, having two legs, fits, of course, perfectly. But the book of Daniel doesn't finish there with this uh, his, history unfolding. When we come to Daniel chapter 7, we see it's not an image of different metals. It speaks of four different beasts. So we put them up there on the screen. The, the first beast that uh, Daniel sees in his dream, which has got more detail than the one that Nebuchadnezzar saw, is a lion with eagle's wings. And then the next is a bear raised up on its side with three ribs in its mouth. And so we understand that these beasts correspond to the empires 
that Nebuchadnezzar dreamt. So the lion is Babylon. The bear raised up on its side is the Medes and the Persians. The three ribs um, uh, we, we won't go into for now. Then the leopard, which um, the, the after the Medes and the Persians came the Greeks. So the leopard is the Greeks and the leopard had four wings. And that's because after Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire split into four. And then there's a great and terrible beast. And I want you to have a look at this beast, particularly in verse 7. In the night visions, I beheld a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, strong exceedingly. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. It was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. So different artists have tried to depict these, this last beast. It's impossible, isn't it? There's no such animal. It's not like a bear or a lion or a leopard with the various wings. No, this is a beast that can't really be described. It's great and terrible. It's strong. It's got iron teeth. Now, do you remember? Let me show you on the screen here that the last stage of the empire that Nebuchadnezzar dreamt of, well, the last stage had iron and clay, but the legs were made of iron, which was about the Roman Empire. So this fourth beast that we read has great iron teeth corresponds to Rome. Now, this isn't Peter Owen's interpretation of this. This isn't Christadelphian's interpretation of this. This is accepted the world over. No one really would dispute that what we see in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 that's set out for us there on the screen is talking of the empires of Babylon, of Persia, of Greece and of Rome. It's the Babylonian system. It's the system of the world. Babylon, Persia, Greece, then Rome. And of course, Rome is the time when the book of Revelation is written, right? You think the Romans came to power before the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of Julius Caesar before the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the various Caesars that came into power. And the, Rome, the Roman Empire lasted for a long, long time. It lasted from BC 168 through to AD 476. So it lasted for hundreds of years, but actually it went more than that. Because it was in AD 476 that Rome itself fell, Western Rome. But as we'll see this evening, Rome was moved also into the east. And the eastern empire of Rome lasted until 1453 when let's see if Beck and Mill can tell us which city fell in 1453. Good job Lil, Constantinople. So Constantinople fell in 1453 and that was the collapse of the Roman Empire. So have we got this in our minds that Daniel shows us a continuous history. 
We believe this continuous historic view of Revelation, just as we see in the book of Daniel, the great prophetic book showing us Babylon, then the Medes and the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. And so Revelation now, the apocalypse is going to unfold more of the history of Rome. So when we come to the book of Revelation, we're not surprised to see more beasts. Now, we're not going to look at these this evening. We'll look at them, God willing, when we come to the various chapters uh, in the next few weeks and months. But I've put there for you the four major beasts of Revelation on the screen. So just as there were four beasts in Daniel, there are four major beasts now of Revelation, but they're not showing us the empires after Rome. They're showing us the great and terrible beast. So just look, here we are. I hope you're still in Daniel 7 and verse 7. In the night visions, when he beheld the fourth beast, it was dreadful and terrible. It was strong, exceeding. It had iron teeth the iron of Rome, and it devoured, and it break in pieces, and it stamped. This is what we're going to see the Roman system do to the Christians, uh, to those who are trying to hold on to the Bible and to the truth of the gospel. So it's that beast that morphs in the book of Revelation. So in chapter 12, when we get there, we're not going to go there tonight, we read of a great red dragon that has seven heads and ten horns. Well, this beast had ten horns, didn't it? At the end of verse 7, it had ten horns. So do you see, the first major beast we come across in the book of Revelation, Revelation 12, we're basically being told... Go back to Daniel. The identity of this beast, it's building on what we saw in Daniel chapter 7. And then when we come to Revelation 13, we read of another beast, the beast of the sea. And we notice it's got seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns. And do you notice it, the identity is almost the same as the dragon that we see in Revelation 12, but we're told a bit more. In fact, this beast has got the body of a leopard, the feet of a bear, and the mouth of a lion. Well, where have you come across the lion, the leopard, the bear? Hopefully you've got your Bible open at Daniel chapter 7. Do you see? We're simply building on the history that we've seen in the book of Daniel. It's really important that we understand this because the system is the Babylonian system. You, King Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. The Roman system is the system of Babylon. It's the system that's apostate to God. Also in Revelation 13, we see another beast. And if you're looking at the screen there, you'll see that that beast looks very different to the other beasts because it's a lamb. But it's called the beast of the earth. But this is no ordinary lamb. This is not the lamb 
that we read of last week, which is the slain lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we read of all the way through Revelation. No, this isn't that lamb. This lamb speaks like a dragon. So do you see? We're immediately being told, no, no, no. It looks like a lamb, but really it's the dragon. It speaks like a dragon and it's got two horns. Why does it look like a lamb then? Because what did Rome do in the 800s? What did Charlemagne do? He created the something Roman Empire. What was it called? The Holy Roman Empire. That's why there's two horns, right? You've got a religious and a political horn, if you like. The Holy Roman Empire. No wonder it looks like a lamb, because he wanted, to all, for all intents and purposes, the world to see a Holy Roman Empire. One like the lamb. And then when we come to chapter 17, we see, once again, that the beast system is back how it was. It's scarlet coloured, just like the red dragon. And it's got seven heads and ten horns. So we'll look at what these beasts mean when we come to them, God willing, in the various chapters. But I wanted to show you that to make everyone have a really clear idea in their minds that what we're reading in the book of Revelation isn't just a battle between good and evil about this dragon or this beast against the saints. No, this is very, very specific. It's talking to us about specific periods of history in relation to the great, dreadful and terrible beast with iron teeth, with ten horns, that we see in Daniel 7 and verse 7, which is the system of Rome. Now, come with me to Revelation chapter 18. And then we're going to go to Revelation 6, don't worry. Come with me to Revelation 18. So, the system of Rome is in Revelation 18, we read about it collapsing. But it doesn't say that Rome is fallen, that Rome is fallen. Look at Revelation 18 and verse 2. What do you read? It says that the angel cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Why does that why is that so significant? Because the fall of Babylon the Great is the fall of the image. It's the fall of the beasts. It's the collapse of the system of Rome, the system of Babylon. It's the one and the same thing. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. So when we read in Daniel chapter 2, and I put it there on the screen so you don't need to turn it up, about the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands that would come and smash into the image and break it in pieces, that image isn't simply Rome and the iron, it's the iron, the brass, the silver, the gold, 
the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And that stone will come and smash into that image and the system of Rome, the system of Babylon, will fall. It's just interesting to note the language I've highlighted there on the screen for you. The great God has made known to the king, that was Nebuchadnezzar, what shall come to pass hereafter. You look up the word hereafter in a dictionary, simply tells you it means from now on. You see, what we're shown in the book of Daniel is what would happen from Daniel's time onwards. And that's exactly the same way in which the book of Revelation works. We're being shown the things that will come to pass hereafter, from now on. Just go back now to Revelation 4, just to remind yourself of that phrase. In verse 1, we read halfway through the verse that John is asked to come up hither, I will show you things which must come to pass hereafter, from now on. Now what year do we suggest that John was given, uh, was asked to write the book of Revelation? What year was that? A.D. 95. Good job, Beck. A.D. 95. So that's the year that we believe that John was given the book of Revelation. So he's going to be shown things that are going to come to pass hereafter. Now turn with me to Revelation 6. And I'm going to keep the slides on the screen just for a bit. Well, for most of the class, actually, because I, there's just so much detail that we need to pick up historically. Revelation 6, we're going to read about... The seals being opened because the lamb is overcome and he's able to open the seals. So John is given these things to write down in AD 95. What year do you think that Revelation 6 begins? AD 96. Great job, Beck. AD 96. So Revelation 6, we believe, begins in the year AD 96. Now let's read it together. We'll read round as we always do. We'll read up as loud as we can. And then once we've done that, we'll start to uh, examine it together. So Revelation 6. I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts, or the four living creatures, saying, Come and see. And I, and I look, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow and a crown, was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given him to, the, him, to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. 
And when he'd opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the, with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And I beheld, and when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she shaken of a mighty wind. The sky vanished the, like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountain and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Okay, so there's lots of language there, isn't there, that's not particularly easy for us. But what we can all grasp immediately is the, the, the first, the second, the third, and the fourth seal. Because as each seal is opened, we see a different horse. The first horse was which colour? Let's ask the guys here. The first horse was white. white. The second horse was red. The third horse was and the fourth horse was pale. pale. So we've got a white horse, a black horse, a red horse, and a pale horse. Uh, we'll come to what it, that really is um, shortly. So white, black, red, pale. First thing then, why horses? Why have we got this picture of the horse? Um, what's that about? Well, I put some references there on the screen. Uh, we don't have the time to look at all these references, but you'll see that in Scripture, the horse is used to depict a symbol of power that men may trust in. So in Psalm 20, for example, of verse 7, we read, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Uh, Psalm 33 a horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Isaiah 31 says, Woe, woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they're many. You've got to look and you've got to put your trust in the Holy One of Israel. And so through the scriptures, we see that the horse is this symbol in all its glory and, and might and strength of what men would put their trust in. It was the symbol of Egypt, the great Egyptian empire that was built that so many in Israel wanted to go and rely on or trust on. And God says, no, you don't put your trust in horses. You, you need to put your trust in me. 
So the symbol of the horse, we just begin our considerations by seeing that scripturally it talks, doesn't it, of the strength um, of men, of the strength of an empire in this case, uh, rather than the strength of God. Now, another key reference is at the end of the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah. So keep a marker, but come back to Zechariah chapter 1, where we read just a little snippet about horses, not dissimilar to what we see in Revelation 6. But it's crucial to us in being given a clue about what we're seeing happen in Revelation 6. So let's go in at verse 8 of Zechariah chapter 1. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom, and behind him there were red horses, speckled and white. So see, a, a similar picture, isn't it, um, that we have in Revelation 6. It, it is different, but you, you see there's coloured horses. Then said I, Oh my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said to me, I'll show you what these be. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, Here's the key clue. These are they whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, We've walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sit is still and is at rest. So these horses are in prophetic symbol, which is just what we've got here in Zechariah, they're not literal horses, of the angels reporting on what they see in the earth. We've walked to and fro through the earth, and in this case they report all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. So when we come to Revelation 6, what we do is we apply these scriptural signs. So we look at the horse and we go, well, this must speak of men's power. In the same way that in the Old Testament we see the horses as the Egyptian empire, we know that the time period we're looking at now is Rome. So these horses are going to speak of this Roman empire. And critically, the fact that we've got these different horses we're going to be given a different report, as it were, on the state of the empire. And now their colours become hugely significant. Because the first horse is white. And white is a symbol in scripture of what? Peace, right? Or righteousness. But Here's this idea of something peaceful. Now we know that the white horse brought peace because what does the red horse do in verse 4? Well, it, look in verse 4 of Revelation 6. The white horse, I'm telling you, we know brings peace. What does the red horse do? Takes peace. Takes peace. All right? So the white horse is a period of peace and prosperity. I'm going to show you what the historians tell us about this shortly. In fact, those of you who like looking or taking a picture of the slides, I suggest in a minute you get your camera ready to take a picture of the slide because it will help you in doing any further study on these 
periods. So the white horse, a period of peace. The red horse, then, if it's taking away peace, what's it going to be like? War and bloodshed, right? It's a red horse. It speaks to us about bloodshed. Okay, what about the black horse? Well, that's not easy, is it? I tell you what, let's have a look at a slide and let's work through it more carefully. With the white horse and the red horse, we think, well, we've got that. We're sorted on that. Here's a slide that I hope will be a help to you. You can see... The four horses on the left there, and the key words that I want you to remember these horses with. So next week, when we go through our recap, God willing, when you're asked what the white horse is, the answer is peace. The red horse, bloodshed. The black horse you can see there, and I'll show you that the information for it is famine. And then the pale horse is talking about death and plague. And, and actually, let's just say this now, while we've mentioned that pale horse, you'll see on the screen, it doesn't look pale in colour. What colour have we put it on the screen? Green. Green. Actually, elsewhere, that this Greek word is translated as green. In fact, it's the word in the Greek, chloros. What do we get from the word chloros? chlorine it's a poisonous substance right you have too much of it so this chloros horse is talking to us about a time of plague and actually of uh, the empire beginning to die so revelation 6 verse 2 i saw and beheld a white horse he that sat on him had a bow a crown was given him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. This horse tells us of a time from AD 96 to AD 183. I've put the date there on the screen. I'd suggest to you that you make a note in your margin. AD 96 to AD 183. And the historians tell us that this was a time of great peace and prosperity. In fact, Edward Gibbon, the historian at the end of the 1700s said the most happy and prosperous time of the human race. That's an extraordinary statement, isn't it? He said, if you could pick a time, I think I've put this for you on the screen. Um, just look in the notes section next to the uh, horse there. If a man were called to fix the period in the history of the world, during which the condition of the human race was most happy and prosperous, he would, without hesitation, name that which elapsed from the death of Domitian to the accession of Commodus. This was the 2nd century AD, when Rome's five good emperors, there on the screen, brought peace and stability. The most happy and prosperous time of the human race. In the surmisings of the historian Edward Gibbon. And so it strikes me as extraordinary that this period of history, the symbol that we're given is of a white horse, speaking of peace. There's a crown and a bow in his hand, 
and he goes forth conquering and to conquer. Rome expands and is bigger. But if you were to live in that period of time, according to Gibbon, it was the most happy period of the human race. Okay, it doesn't last. Because after the white horse comes the red horse. Verse 4. There went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given him a great sword. Clearly, it's speaking of a time of terrible bloodshed. They will kill one another. There was given him a great sword. So I put there in the notes, in the view of the Greek historian, Dio Cassius, a contemporary observer, the accession of the Emperor Commodus in 180 AD marked the descent from a kingdom of gold during the period of the White Horse to one of rust and iron. A famous comment which has led some historians, notably Edward Gibbon, to take Commodus's reign as the beginning of the decline of the Roman Empire. When Commodus had once tasted human blood, it was said, he became incapable of pity or remorse. What a thing to be recording the history of this man, Commodus, who began this period of history in 183, when terrible destruction came upon the Roman Empire as the infighting of the Caesars became horrendous. In the year 193, Commodus was strangled to death and there were five emperors. There were five emperors simply because they kept killing each other. The fifth emperor lasted until the time of the next period of history. So you can look at that in your time, but suffice to say, you look at any history book and it will tell you what a awful time it was in the Roman Empire because of the blood spilt as fights for power um, brought terrible, terrible consequences um, and the spilling of blood at this period of history. And then we come to the black horse, verse 5. We read um, halfway through the verse, Behold, lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice of the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, three measures of barley for a penny. See thou hurt not the oil or the wine. And we're told that as uh, the infighting in Rome got worse, so during the reign of Caracalla, Roman citizenship was granted to all free-born inhabitants of the empire. Now you may look at that and think, well, that's a nice thing to have done. But actually, he did it because he was living such a decadent lifestyle, as was uh, Egebolus, a uh, the, the, the emperor after him, where they spent a huge amount of the treasury's money. They desperately needed more and more taxes coming in. They spelt it, spent it on the most dec decadent and lavish and extravagant lifestyles. But as they spent it on these lifestyles, so more money was needed to come into the Roman coffers. And so the reason they gave citizenship, or Caracalla gave citizenship 
to all the inhabitants of the empire, the freeborn inhabitants of the empire, was actually because it was going to raise taxes because all Roman citizens had to pay tax. Now, it became so bad in the provinces. And these things at the time of the red horse, the time of the, uh, the black horse, are really having a greater impact not simply on Italy particularly, but more on the outskirts of the provinces because of the infighting in Rome and then because of the results of the taxes and the famine that came from those taxes. Because what happened is that in the provinces, the farmers conned on to the fact that actually it was more expensive for them to grow the crops and be taxed on it that it was simply to not bother sowing the seed at all. And so the farmers stopped sowing and famine became a major issue in the Roman Empire. And so the black horse speaks to us of famine. Let me give you a great reference for that scripturally. Lamentations chapter 5 and verse 10. So I'll turn it up and look at it. You just make a note next to verse 5, the black horse Lamentations or Lam 5 verse 10, where we read this. Our skin was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. All right? Just a terrific verse, isn't it? Black famine. That helps us understand why this horse is a black horse and why we read about the measure of wheat for a penny, three measures of barley for a penny. It's because of the time of famine due to the taxes at this stage in the empire. And then verse 7, we come to the fourth seal that's opened. I heard the voice of the fourth beast or the fourth living creature, remember it is. It's not the same as the beasts that we read of in Daniel and later in Revelation. The fourth living creature say, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. So that pale, we need to just make a note, perhaps in our margin, is the chloros horse. It's the green horse. It's this pale green. You say to someone, don't you, if they're, if they're looking ill, oh, you look a bit green, you do. And really, that this is what we're telling them, right? It's this idea, this green picture of the plague and of death. In fact, the rider's name is Death, and Hell followed with him. So this symbolically is talking to us about a period of plague and of death. In fact, the death of the empire. In fact, when we look at the history, we're told that at this period, the Roman Empire was engulfed by the crisis of the 3rd century, a period of invasions, of civil strife, of economic disorder and plague. Diocletian, who we'll just consider a bit more shortly, who reigned from 284 to 305 AD, divided the empire at this time into four regions each ruled by a separate emperor, emperor, the Tetrarchy. So as it were, you almost had four Caesars, four emperors across the emperor, empire as it was divided into four. Let's just keep reading that on the screen there. Confident that he fixed the disorders that were plaguing Rome, he abdicated along with his co-emperor and the Tetrarchy soon collapsed. 
order was eventually restored by Constantine the Great, who became the first emperor to convert to Christianity and who established Constantinople as the new capital of the Eastern Empire. And so suddenly, here we are in Nebuchadnezzar's image, the head of gold was Babylon, but the legs of iron, remember there were two of them, east and the west. And we're now getting to a point where we're hearing about Constantine, who sets up Constantinople as the capital of the eastern leg of the Roman Empire. But this period is a time of great death and plague for the empire. We read, didn't we, that power, verse 8, was given to them over the fourth part of the earth. Now, what does this mean? Well, what we just read there, what did Diocletian do? He divided Rome into four, into four tetrarchs. So what does it mean when it says power was given over the fourth part of the earth? Well, the earth was simply the Roman world. All right, it's not talking about the globe. That's not the idea. The idea in the earth here is it's talking about the Roman world. We see that idea used all the way through scripture of uh, the earth being talking of an empire. So here the earth is the empire, but power now is given over the fourth part. And the reason is this, that we mentioned earlier, didn't we, that the awful um, results of the bloodshed that came out of the Caesars keep, kept having to be changed because they kept killing one another and then the next one would come to power, is that it affected the outer regions of the empire, not particularly uh, within Italy or Rome. They managed to ride it out, as it were. In addition, when the famine came, that famine was because of the fact that the farmers in the outer reach of the empire weren't able to sow their seed. And that famine affected the whole empire, but particularly those outside of the power base of Rome. But now we're told that authority, power is given over the fourth part of the empire. This is the part that now Diocletian was over initially. Uh, actually, he moved out to, to, to the um, east, not wanting to, to confuse things. But this is the Italian section, the Roman section now, the fourth part that is going to be troubled terribly as Rome is going to begin to collapse. So power is given over the fourth part to kill with sword, with hunger and with death. So when it says to kill with sword, who's been carrying a great sword? Which horse rider? Who was carrying the great sword? The red horse. Who brought hunger or famine? The black horse. And who brought death? The green horse, the pale horse, right? So now, what we're seeing is the judgments that came upon the empire 
through the red horse who took peace away. Of course, the white horse isn't mentioned because that was a time of peace. The red horse that took peace away with his sword, that now is going to affect the fourth part. That's going to affect Rome itself. The black horse that brought famine, that affected all over the empire, that now is specifically going to affect Rome itself. And death. Because Rome itself, the capital of this great empire that's lasted for hundreds of years, is going to die. And we're now told of another. It's not just with sword, with hunger and with death. But we learn it's also with the beasts of the earth. And so we ask the question, well, who are the beasts of the earth? We know who the sword is. We know who the hunger is. We know who death is. Who's the beasts of the earth? Well, the historians tell us that Western Rome, collapsed not just because of the things that we've just read of here but because the barbarians came into the empire so that slide there gives us a picture of what we see happening at the time of the chloros horse now let me just show you that this is not a one-off. This isn't something that is simply God's judgment coming on the Roman Empire at the time um, that John has been has written that this prophecy is taking place. This is how God has worked previously in history. A good reference to have in your margin is Ezekiel 14 and verse 21, where we read... Just the same sort of language. So Ezekiel 14, we read in verse 21, For thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send my four sore judgments on Jerusalem? So this isn't Rome now, this is Jerusalem. The sword, the famine, the noisome beasts, and the pestilence. So do you see, you've got exactly the same four things. Sword, famine, beasts, and pestilence, or plague. Exactly the same four things. And so God, who's used those four judgments through history, is now using them to bring down Rome. Rome is going to collapse. And now we read of the fifth seal being opened in verse 9 of Revelation 6. So Revelation 6 and verse 9. When he'd opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. So at this time, there's the most terrible persecutions taking place in the church. Just just to note first, just look on the screen there, to make the point about the beasts again, being the barbarians. Again, Gibbon helps us. He says, the story of its ruin is simple and obvious. 
I've put it there on the screen, look at the bold. The vigour of the military government was relaxed of Rome and finally dissolved by the partial institutions of Constantine, excuse me, and the Roman world was overwhelmed by a deluge of barbarians. They are the beasts of the earth that are going to come in and make Rome collapse. But when we come to this fifth seal now, we see that during this period, it's the most awful, awful period for the Christians, for the saints who are trying to hold on to the truth. So look at the picture we see, verse 9. I saw under the altar, so the idea of under the altar, of course, is the picture of those who have associated themselves with the work of the Lord Jesus Christ through baptism. I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain. What were they slain for? They were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not adjudge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given to every one of them. And it was said to them that they should rest, yet for little what season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. And so, during this awful time of persecution, the saints are calling, how long, O Lord, holy and true, how long? Now, when we look at this time period, so the fifth seal, we'd make a note in our margin, AD 303 to 311. So next to verse 9, AD 303 to 311. The emperors, we've already seen, haven't we, that Diocletian has come onto the throne. But So he's just there for the last... Uh, two years he he dies in 305 but the fifth seal begins in 303 so Diocletian is there for the first two years of the fifth seal as is Galerius as is Maximin but look what we read again from Edward Gibbon these emperors launched even more vigorous campaigns of persecution against the Christians soldiers burned an entire Christian town in Phrygia Churches were destroyed. Copies of scripture were burned. What do we read? That the souls of them, they were slain for the word of God, for the testament. So scripture is burned. Christians were imprisoned, mutilated, beaten, drowned, branded, decapitated, tortured, hanged, starved to death. Searching out, arresting and killing all the Christians he could. Diocletian declared his intention to end Christianity. Maximin even offered tax exemptions to cities that demonstrated a willingness to persecute Christians. Now you might say, well, what's happening here? Why have we got these different emperors? Of course, it's because Rome is divided into four. So you've got these various emperors, particularly in the east, where Diocletian was, giving the most horrendous persecutions against the Christians, those who were trying to hold on to the word of God, which is why at this period we see them calling out, how long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? 
They're desperate, desperate, aren't they, for help. Now, I'd like us to just make some references here. So, cried with a loud voice. I'm going to make a suggestion that you write there, Genesis 4 and verse 10. Let's turn there. Genesis 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. And do you remember that when Cain kills Abel, we read in verse 9 that the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, thy brother? He said, I know not, am I my brother's keeper? He said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth to me from the ground. And so it's not, as it were, that literally the blood is crying from the ground to God. But rather, God is so saddened by the needless killing of a faithful man, a man in Abel who tried to serve God properly in bringing what God asked as uh, a sacrifice for his sins. Cain wasn't prepared. Cain said, I'm going to do it my way. Cain is like the system of Rome. And he kills Abel. And so when in Revelation 6 and verse 10, we read that they cried with a loud voice saying, avenge our blood. We're seeing, aren't we, the picture shown to us in the beginning of Cain and Abel. Another good reference actually on that note is Hebrews 12, which comments on Cain and Abel, or Abel particularly. So Hebrews 12 we read that the Lord Jesus, in verse 24 of Hebrews 12, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant and the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than of Abel. And so because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain, the lamb that we saw in our chapter last week, in chapter 5, because of his sacrifice, actually... It's even better than anything Abel was able to speak of. Even though Abel was a good man, it was incomparable to the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of his sacrifice, these men and women who were being persecuted and killed as a result of their faith are given, verse 11, white robes to every one of them. Isn't it lovely? It doesn't say, don't worry, I will give you white robes. When the um, uh, promise was made to the Ecclesias, you remember that the Ecclesia in Sardis, in Revelation 3 and verse 4, uh, verse 5 we read, he that overcomes, the same will be clothed in white raiment. To him that overcomes, these men and women who died for their faith, it doesn't say they will be given. It says white robes were given to them. Now, that won't happen, will it, until the kingdom age? But it's as good as happened. And it's not like we could say, oh, oh well, maybe they've gone to heaven. Of course they haven't, verse 11. It was told that they should rest. That's symbol in scripture. The idea of rest, of course, is actually that they've fallen on sleep. They're in the grave they're dead but we don't use that idea of death in the same way 
because it's not a permanent state. This is speaking of the resurrection, isn't it? When they will be given the white raiments because they overcame the problem of Rome. They overcame. Why? Because they held on to the word of God. Just another very quick reference for us, as they call how long? Psalm 94. So just come back to Psalm 94. Just the first four verses, perhaps verse 13 too, but Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself, lift up thyself, thou judge the earth, render reward to the proud. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things, and all the workers of iniquity chastise themselves? And it's interesting, the psalm goes on to talk about the blessing. Verse 10, he that chastises the heathen sh shall not he correct. He that teacheth man knowledge shall he not know. That word uh, teacheth is the same word. Blessed is the man whom thou chasteneth, O Lord. And it's the same word thou teachest and teachest him out of thy law. So do you see that verse 10 and verse 12 are repeated? I don't think I said that very well. The word teach is not the same as the word chastise, but the word teach is the same as in verse 10 and 12, and the word chastise is the same in verse 10 and 12. Blessed is the man, verse 12 tells us, whom thou chastenest. And so it's just remarkable to me that at this time in Roman history, many of the Christians, despite the most terrible torture that we've just gone through, that's there on the screen, were more than happy to allow that to happen to them, knowing that they would be blessed and that a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory was to be given to them once that persecution finished. They would close their eyes, they would rest for a little while, until, when we come back to Revelation 6, they would rest for a little time until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled so in other words they were to rest for a little while until a time when the elect would be made up their brethren also who would many suffer exactly the same persecutions until the time was finished they would have to rest and that time hasn't come has it but it's a good a good reference i think is the end of Hebrews 11, where you remember that we read in Hebrews 11 about all the faithful, many of whom who went through the most terrible tortures. We read, don't we, that they had trial of cruel mockings, verse 36 of Hebrews 11, scourgings, moreover of bonds, imprisonment, they were stoned, sawn asunder, tempted, slain with the sword, wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts, in mountains, in caves, in caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, receive not the promise. Because God, having promised some better thing for us, 
that they without us should not be made perfect. And so that's the picture that we've got here in Revelation 6 and verse 11. And so we come finally tonight to the sixth seal, the time when Rome suddenly begins to change. You remember that Rome was split into four. We have the four tetrarchs. And look there on the screen, the westernmost tetrarch, the western section of the empire there, which involves modern France and Britain, was the district, look at the key there on the screen, of Constantius as Caesar. Now, why is this interesting? Well, because that was the father of Constantine the Great, who was brought up for some time in Britain. Constantine lived in Britain for some time, growing up. And his mother was a Greek Christian. And no doubt he was brought up, and again, in where he lived in Britain, we remember that much of the terrible torture that Diocletian was bringing about um, was in the eastern section of the empire. So where he is and where his father is ruling, Christianity is tolerated considerably more. And so he is learning, although a pagan, he's learning about Christianity. And perhaps his father is a little more tolerant towards it. And so this man is the great character that we read of now in Revelation 6 from verse 12 down to verse 17. He is going to change Rome and turn it upside down because he's smart. And he doesn't want to rule over a fourth of the empire. His father, you see, suddenly died and he suddenly became ruler of that most western part of the Roman Empire of France and Britain and he thought well I don't want to be just the ruler of this part I want to be ruler of the whole of the Roman Empire and so to consolidate his position uh, he got rid of the other emperors but it wasn't going to be easy for him and in order to make sure that the empire was behind him, he reversed the policy of Diocletian and Maximin that we have seen that was persecuting the Christians during the time of the fifth seal. And he thought, hold on, if I'm gonna be really successful, I'm actually not gonna persecute the Christians on the contrary, I am going to Christianize Rome. And so he changes Rome from being pagan to Christian. Now, it's said that he saw a vision. Uh, so, uh, it's recorded that he saw a vision um, uh, on the way as he marched uh, to battle that we'll look at when we come particularly to chapter 12 um, or chapter 11 even. But he, th th this vision he saw 
that um, he says, you know, showed him the, the, the letters talking of the Jesus Christ, that he should go forth and conquer. Um, he used that, whether he saw that vision or not is irrelevant. He used that to Christianize and to win over the Christians of Rome. And so what we see now in Revelation 6 and verse 12 is the sixth seal being opened and there was a great earthquake. And this is the first of only three great earthquakes in Revelation. We've got one here, one in Revelation 11 and verse 13, and that speaks to us of the time of the French Revolution, which was such a major world event. We'll come to that when we come to chapter 11. And there's another great earthquake in chapter 16, verse 18, after Armageddon, which, of course, is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this period of history is considered so, so significant. It's the end of an era. It's the collapse of pagan Rome. So much so that in the apocalypse, we read of a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair. The moon became as blood. Uh, a reference I've got in my margin is Joel chapter 2. Joel 2 and verse 31. Where we read, when you can find Joel... It's one of those books, isn't it? It takes a while to find. So Joel 2, verse 31. This actually is talking about Jerusalem falling in AD 70. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and the terrible day of the Lord shall come. It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and the remnant whom the Lord doth call. So this is prophesying from Joel of a great period of time when the Jewish age would collapse in AD 70 and the time the Gentiles would come in. But that language is used in Revelation 6 to talk to us of a great epoch in time when pagan Rome would fall and become Christianized. And we just still note that language of Joel 2. It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. And that's exactly what we now see happening as pagan Rome collapses and Christianized Rome comes in. Suddenly the Christians have their status elevated as the churches are reopened and the pagan rulers across the empire are stood down. And so it's a time when the sun became black. So the, the, the Rome itself becomes black a sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell into the earth. So the, the, the sun, the moon, the stars talks to us, doesn't it, of the key rulers that collapse. The heaven departed as a scroll, verse 14, when it rolled together. Every mountain and island were moved out of their places. So what the picture there, the mountain and islands, this is every aspect of the empire. You see, Constantine is no longer going to be one of four. He unites the whole empire. He rules over the whole of the Roman Empire. 
every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man, free man hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains. It's the time, isn't it, of Constantine, when all these pagan kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the chief, they're having to hide because Rome is changing. It's becoming Christian. Now, you'll notice, many of you, that this language is actually kingdom language. I put it there on the screen. In fact, we read when we carry on, don't we? Verse 16, they said to the mountains, so these kings of the earth, the great men, these pagans, say, fall on us, hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne. Well, who's now sitting on the throne? It's Constantine. And from the wrath of the Lamb. Well, this works on multiple levels. Because in the first instance, this is the Lamb. It's the Lord Jesus Christ opening the seal and allowing these things to happen. It's the angels who are working, who are bringing about this massive change in the history of the world. But in the first place, the one that they see as the lamb on the throne, the one who's Christianizing Rome, is Constantine. He's the one to them who is as the lamb on the throne. As we know, Constantine gets a huge amount of the Christian faith wrong. But you imagine, if you have been living in the early 300s, during the time of Diocletian, of Maximum, you've been living through the most terrible, terrible torture. You've been saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, how long will this go on for? And suddenly an emperor comes into power who removes all the others, who unites Rome and who says, it's okay to be a Christian. No wonder so many of them genuinely believed at this time that the real kingdom had come. That's why the language here is kingdom language. Many of them believed it was the time of the kingdom. Clearly, they were wrong. This was a key, key period in history because, amongst other things, what Constantine did is move the power base from Rome out to the east. And he set up a eastern capital. Rome at this point was still the capital of the west. He set up an eastern capital, a capital of the eastern leg of the empire. And it was called Constantinople, after, of course, him. It's modern day Istanbul. Now you might say, well, how do we know that that's what happened with Constantine using religion to help him with his power base. Well, we see it, we'll finish with this. Finally, we see it in the world today. Think about Putin. 
Vladimir Putin, this article from last year says, uses his Russian orthodoxy to grow his empire. We watch Putin today using the church, using religion, using the Russian Orthodox Church, the Christian Church of the East to grow his empire. Now let me show you this article from The Independent just last year again. It says of Vladimir Putin, tyrant he may be, and they're comparing him actually to Donald Trump, but at least he's sane. His legions stayed out of the war in Syria and saved the Assad regime. They cleared the highways of ISIS mines. They restored the roads, sometimes incredibly, what were once Roman roads, and they learned Arabic. Perhaps, indeed, look at this, Putin now plays the role of the latter Roman Empire of the East, the Christian one, which survived in Constantinople, Byzantium, Istanbul, for hundreds more years after the fall of Rome itself, all the Middle East, is now his empire, talking of Putin, every capital welcoming the emperor. So isn't it amazing that even in the last few months, Vladimir Putin, the one who at the moment uses the Orthodox Church to grow his empire, is held up as the emperor, the one sitting in the eastern leg, Constantinople, the one who... Uh, in the in, in charge of Russia is the emperor that we should look for in the as the head of the eastern leg. So Revelation six, it's about the Roman Empire. It's about the time of peace, the time of bloodshed, the time of famine, and the time when Rome would begin to die. But then critically we're given a glimmer of the importance of Constantine, which we'll read more of and learn more of when we come to chapter 12. So, what's our homework? Well, I've put a QR code there. I appreciate that there'll be many looking at this thinking, I don't even know what a QR code is. But the young people know, and you can scan it. That, that, if you scan that QR code, it will take you to that website. And I would suggest that it's helpful to learn a little bit of history, that website's a very, very simple one, just from the Britannica, showing us some of the major events in the life of Constantine, because we'll see as we go through the book of Revelation that some of those events are key um, events in history that are helpful to our study. Uh, a bit more um, uh, study for us. Have a look at Revelation 7 and verse 3 and ask yourself, where do we read of the sealed in Revelation and in other parts of Scripture? What's the significance of the sealing? And then another bit of homework that's perhaps our hardest challenge is at the end of Revelation chapter six, 7, we read a quote from Isaiah 49 and verse 10. And the question to you is, what's the key difference in the quotation? And what does this teach us or what does it show? So take a picture perhaps of that. Um, or if you're looking at this not as a live video, you can just press pause on the screen and perhaps do a little bit of study for yourself. I'm going to minimise that and go back on the screen.
And uh, yeah, I hope that uh, we feel that we've got a bit gr greater grasp of um, Revelation chapter six. Let's. Mm -hmm.